Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. How did President Nixon build his majority coalition with a forward and innovative appeal to younger voters in 1972? Seth Blumenthal explains this in his new book, Children of the Silent Majority, Young Voters and the Rise of the Republican Party, 1968 to 1980. Dr. Blumenthal is a historian and senior lecturer at Boston University. You can follow him on Twitter at Seth Blumenthal. Seth, welcome. Thanks for having me. Seth, first, can you give us a little background on, um, I guess, what inspired you to um, research this topic and ultimately uh, write this book? Yeah, well, um, you know, this began as an attempt really to reconsider Richard Nixon's influence on the Republican Party's ability to win over a generation and then also an intervention to think about um, the rise of conservatism, the rise of the right, and also to think about modern modern political campaign strategies such as polling and image making, you know, to look sort of beyond Watergate to think about... um, that was, you know, Nixon's wider significance. And, you know, that was an approach that a lot of Nixon scholars tended to support uh, when I was in graduate school. Um, I will say, however, you know, the Trump presidency has made my efforts to put Watergate on the side increasingly uh, sort of difficult. Still, um, with the rise of youth politics recently, um, I think politics today still underlines the book's message uh, about the role that young voters can play. And what were you, what was, what was your primary um, research uh, for this? What did you, you know, where did you look for uh, to, to develop your well, story? The papers at the Nixon library are phenomenal on 1972 and what I call CRP, um, more notoriously known as creep, but Jeb Magruder's papers were fantastic. Um, the other source was uh, Frederick Malik, as far as his papers really were valuable, thinking about the citizens group and how Nixon's campaign was really forward thinking the way they the way they thought about segmenting their uh, constituency and their targeted approach and the way it merged with uh, some of Madison Avenue's smartest guys uh, who really uh, thought about ways they could win over groups like the youth and the youth vote was really above and beyond those other citizen groups that were so important, like the ethnic groups and the plumbers for Nixon and the different targeted uh, elements of Democrats for Nixon, of course, was well known. And, and the youth for Nixon was the most well-funded of all of them and was really, I think, central uh, to, to Nixon's campaign. I think he admittedly would have won without the youth vote, but it showed ways in which Nixon was able to win a landslide and build a future coalition at the same time. You begin your book by talking about President Nixon's second inaugural, uh, January 20th, 1973, um, as having Nixon, um, as having what Nixon wanted, um, this particular um, inaugural ceremony and the inaugural um, uh, balls that followed, um, a heavy mm-hmm. accent on youth. Um, could you describe the scene? Well, you know, Nixon knew that pulling off the youth vote would be a great counterintuitive, and he loved those. And this is his way, really, to shift the narrative, to challenge all the people who predicted that 
young people were going to lean left and that they were an obstacle in his mission to bring in a conservative era politically. And Nixon wanted to show it off. He, he really wanted to emphasize that. I think also uh, not too far off in the distance and what would have if Nixon had served his term uh, been something that he would have been in office to, to celebrate was the bicentennial. And so the theme was uh, 1976, even in 1972, it was this idea of sort of rejuvenation of American patriotism. And I think the young people played an especially important symbolic role there. But I think Nixon also saw that his silent majority was more durable. Um, it, it, and, and it pushed back on the backlash reputation for the Republican Party that he had really tried to uh, distance himself from, even as he pursued many of its uh, elements. When you think about the 1960s youth um, in America, sort of the historical perspective, often people on both right and left, there's a notion that there were, that these kids were rebellious and radical and there was a generation generation gap generational gap politically um seems like a bit monolithic but what do you think what do you think actually characterized the use political attitudes right so i think um one thing that did unify them and while there was a strong group on the right uh, a young cadre of conservatives that uh, pushed for a um, a more full-throated anti-communism. Uh, speaking of groups uh, on the right, uh, even young Republicans were pushing, uh, uh, you know, in support of the Vietnam War specifically, and the Young Americans for Freedom. Um, I think the overwhelming majority of young people opposed the Vietnam War. And I I really think that's something, um, even though there were varying ways of expressing it, whether it be peace through honor or, um, you know, just ending the war outright, that there was a consistency. I think about, um, I think about some people who worked for Nixon's campaign, uh, Hank Haldeman, Haldeman's son, who, uh, admitted that he sort of had a ponytail and and it w- was marching on UCLA's campus, uh, protesting the the bombing of the, the Haiphong Harbor mining. And two weeks later, working on the campaign, there was room in Nixon's campaign for for people who thought the war should end. And so I think that's something that was really important. And when we talk about Nixon's October surprise and ending the war, I think that was something that really mattered to a lot of young voters and helped him tremendously, not to mention clearly ending the draft. Could you take us through the political parties at this period of time, uh, the Republican and the Democratic parties? Uh, The Democratic Democratic Party by the 1968 convention was split between its traditional New Deal coalition and the so-called new uh, anti-war left. Um, while at the same time the Republicans were slowly regaining f- uh, footing after the um, devastating loss by Barry Goldwater in 1964 to Lyndon Johnson, but they had picked up some congressional seats um, in 66 um, and then 68. Um, how are both parties taking shape ideologically at this time? Right. 
So I think it's important to note that um, Nixon, you know, envisioned even creating a new party called the Conservative Party. He um, always wanted to move politics to the right and, and sometimes um, actually used liberal measures to achieve those ends. Um, so um, that, that needs to be established. Uh, that said, um, Nixon's effort was clearly to moderate the party after 1964, which was a lesson that all conservatives learned as far as how they could win. And, you know, the lesson was to, in a lot of ways, not be um, a Goldwater. And that's what one, uh, one um, what they were called young voters for the president. This was the, the group that he set up with over 400,000 members. Um, and, uh, you know, talking about Nixon and race, he said, you know, he was, you know, busing worked in the South as far as Nixon's position there, uh, pushing back on busing. Um, Nixon did sign law uh, in affirmative action, though there are some uh, interpretations that see him pulling back a little bit on that right before the election. Um, so um, I, I think as far as race stood, you know, uh, Nixon took a complicated position on it, but he definitely moderated his image when it came to uh, race. And so I, I think that that was, uh, an important step that he took to, to sort of show what the Republican Party was doing. And his reach out to young voters was really important to show that he had moderated. He could bridge the gap. Um, you know, he, he, he was um, somebody who was never going to be associated with being hip, but um, he could make kind of a square chic thing out. And so and so I think identity wise and image wise, I think young voters were important there. And, and that pertains to the issues as well. On the other side, with the Democrats, they were looking at a problem, and that was that the Democratic coalition was clearly breaking up. Uh, as we know, uh, after um, the 1960s, we begin to see a uh, break apart uh, from the solid South, and the Democratic Party was looking for uh, an adapted coalition, and young voters fit in perfectly. They really envisioned a more robust youth vote as they saw the, the optimism and the left, apparently left leaning of liberal activism going on in the 1960s, that the, the Democrats envisioned a new coalition of young people that could, uh, you know, supplement its sort of suburban strategy, uh, focus on, you know, and, and to create a coalition with uh, those voters and also include its, its traditional hold uh, to some extent on the working class white ethnics. Um, that were, uh, you know, living in the, in the white urban enclaves of the Northeast and uh, Rust Belt. So the, uh, the, that sort of defines the, the shifting coalitions and the way young voters fit in there. Your reference to squareness and chicness reminds me of uh, when uh, Richard Nixon went on laughing and said, uh, Sokka to me. <laughs> but how did Sokka the... to me? That's a question. <laughs> right. How right. did... Um, Yep, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, how did the youth vote ultimately in 1968? Oh, uh, young voters in 1968, um, Nixon did very poorly in 1968. And I think some of it was um, uh, his own doing. He embraced a more uh, law and order approach in 1968. And um, young voters, while something, uh, it was an emerging development, it really wasn't in 1972 that his effort on uh, youth politics really shined. Um, and so between the policy, the tough approach he took on the generation gap, especially his uh, tough position and law and order position on student activism. And I mean, and you asked earlier what kind of 
uh, ways we could define a generation, and that's always uh, tricky territory. But there was one thing that the Nixon people sort of talked about, and that was an attack, an attack on one was sort of an attack on all. That uh, even if people necessarily didn't share a political sensibility, there was sort of this uh, general defense, me- generational defense mechanism. Um, and uh, so I, I think that um, that's something that might have happened in, in 1968, um, that he sort of alienated young voters. Um, and it, 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 he, he uh, only managed about 37 or so percent, if I remember correctly, as far as what he won with young voters, somewhere around what Trump got. So not great. Theodore White mentions in his book, The Making of a President in 1968, that the college age had exploded um, to about six times uh, since the end of the Second World War. Um, obviously, during this period of time, the Vietnam War was still was still at its height. And um, mm-hmm. there was a lot of domestic insecurity, you know, based on the rapid social changes in American society. And, and youth, a lot, many youth became very attached, attached to that. Um, Nixon says he wants peace of honor um, in Vietnam, and he also imp- imposes, as you say, um, a campaign strategy based on the theme of law and order. Um, fast forward two years later, in 1970, um, after the announcement of uh, the U.S. troops' incursion into um, for an operation in Cambodia, um, the student mm-hmm. students at Kent State protest. Um, four students are killed. Um, so how did how did the Nixon administration um, square its own um, youth outreach um, to this sort of rancorous political environment? Yeah, well, that that was really important because um, it was really Kent State in many ways that played a huge role, I argue, in getting the Twenty Sixth Amendment passed. And so while Nixon was sort of uneasy about how to react to Kent State, he didn't want to capitulate. um, And uh, it did um, become a problem. One of his advisors suggested you don't want law and order to become hate and order. And even his constituency started getting letters of people asking him to uh, find ways to resolve the the problems of the generations. Um, He really, I think, only reacted in the ways that he did because Kent State was clearly going to translate into a political coalition. And he followed, in some ways, the mythology that young people would be a threat to his uh, conservative project. And so that is when he really, I think, began to... I think that's the significance of Kent State, that it, may, it turned the youth vote into a, a more of a, a political liability for for Nixon. Uh, also, I mean, they did polling all through 1970, and he was doing horribly on campuses. And so um, it just was a bad PR thing. So that's when you, I think, start seeing a lot of small and large gestures um, by Nixon to try and improve his relationship with young people. Um, he c- created a youth conference uh, that they held at Estes Park in Colorado, which was uh, termed Nixon's Woodstock um, and he gathered over a thousand young people from across the country um, to really and, and, and put them into task force. And it was a, a three-day event that really tried to 
you know, flesh out some of the, the deeper riffs um, and ways in which, um, you know, Nixon could at least make it look like he was reaching out to young people. He, I don't think he ever believed he could really win them over, um, but felt like he had to, to make the try. I think he was surprised when some of the young people he hired, like Ken Reitz uh, and Bill Brock, um, who was a senator in Tennessee, who really convinced Nixon that he could pull this off. I think Nixon was actually surprised when it actually happened. You mentioned um, Bill Brock and Ken Reitz, um, their successes in uh, Tennessee. C- could you expand on that a little bit? Who who were the who were they, and um, what mm-hmm. was the, what you know what were their ideas for voter outreach? Right. So um, Ken Reitz was a young up and comer um, who was working with Harry Trulevin and doing PR uh, and political consulting. And Nixon sent him down to work with uh, Brock and Brock put him in charge in many ways of the whole campaign, but Reitz focused on, on the young voters. It was really a natural fit for Brock, who was a, a youth candidate himself. He'd come up through the young Republicans. He was in his young thirties when he became the first congressman in his district in Chattanooga from the Republican party in over three decades. Uh, so he was really a, a uh, it was a good fit for, for a young voter campaign. And Brock, for his youth campaign, stunned the country because he was running against Al Gore Sr., a staunch anti-war activist. And people assumed that young people would just go with Gore. And uh, Brock was able to reach out to a conservative uh, contingency of, of young people. He had 12,000 members of young voters for Brock. And they had a great ground game. He, he actually said that he used union literature. So they used union strategies for organizing. Uh, uh, a sort of ironic twist. And, um, and really was able to, uh, to win the youth vote in, in Tennessee, which at the time was still the 21-year-old vote and up, but um, was still um, something that, that Brock was very proud of and I think was important as much for the ballot box um, but also for the ground game that young voters provide in campaigns. And that was sort of the thing that I think uh, Brock was best able to transfer over to Nixon's campaign was that, um, you know, young people might not always vote for you. You might not always win over the young voters, but they're really good for campaigning. And what were the, what were the key issues that attracted um, young voters to Brock? Uh, one thing that attracted a lot of young people was just an adherence to sort of free market philosophies mapped over onto politics. And that was the idea that uh, one party politics had not benefited them. Um, and so it was just a way to have uh, sort of a choice to have a Republican Party. Certainly, it did appeal to their conservatism on a lot of racial issues, but also with um their sort of opposition to sort of permissive 1960s culture. There was sort of a religious appeal, uh, that sort of square chic notion of, uh, you know, of pushing back on those elements. And so those things made Brock and also his sort of youth and vision and the way he sort of sold the Republican Party for the first time, I think, uh, for a lot of uh, Republicans as the party of ideas, that they had new ideas, that the, re- the Democratic parties were old and sort of dusty and that there was sort of new ideas coming out of the Republican party about, um, you know, uh, cutting taxes and, um, 
you know, talking about free trade and, and, and a uh, uh, sort of bland emphasis on prosperity that they could sort of build on that, that those themes were really effective in opposition to Al Gore, who sort of leaned on old traditional techniques, stump speeches about social security that weren't necessarily as sexy as what Bill Brock was selling, ironically. You say something key in your book, uh, that Democrats look to young voters as a voting bloc, and Nixon's campaign began the important step of identifying and promoting a silent majority among youth. Um, You had mentioned uh, Fred Malik's strategies, uh, targeting strategies earlier, Um, but can you you explain the key difference uh, here? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of it had to do with um, resources. And at the um, foundation of this were a lot of business resources and connections that um, Nixon's campaign had, specifically with groups like uh, Peter Daly's November group, which basically volunteered to run sort of a Madison Avenue style targeted advertising campaign and really worked very closely with the young voters um, because um, young voters were uh, so appealing. I mean, most of the reason that um, Nixon developed or invested in young voters was because of its, uh, its media appeal. Um, And so I I think using those sort of corporate strategies and the resources that the Nixon campaign had in 1972, which no other campaign afterwards had because of all the campaign finance reform after Watergate, um, you know, they really could spend whatever they wanted. Um, On the other side, McGovern, they were just so cash strapped and really focused more on just floating out issues that they thought would win over young people, like just being against the war and didn't think that you needed to really focus on the, the ground level elements that, that Nixon was able to pull off. So I, I think that was really the, the big distinction between um, how ironically, you know, while Nixon's campaign was sort of, uh, you know, associated with being sort of uh, uh, reactionary by some, um, was really the more sort of forward looking uh, campaign strategy. You had mentioned the 26th Amendment um, passed in 1971 um, as, as, a, as an example of, uh, of policy outreach to, uh, to young voters. Um, you had mentioned that sort of the, the uh, initiator of that, um, in part, was the, um, was the Kent State, um, uh, the tragedy at Kent State. Um, but were there any other policies that the um, Nixon administration deployed that was that were um, pretty attractive to uh, younger voters. Yeah, I mean, I think it's surprising when you start looking for it how often Nixon was talking about how is this going to play with young people. So in more obvious places like the environment, Nixon was really concerned with young people pushing against industry in general and losing faith in the system. And so the, you know, the environmental act, he talked all the time about how it was important. He would bring young people into it. The draft, he had a draft advisory board that included mostly young people. So for those, those were sort of the, the, the major issues, but even in places that you might not expect, like um, his move to China, the ping pong diplomacy, how 
he was talking about, you know, how young people would really be impressed with this. And he was always trying to get them to do the polling of college students on China because he knew it really went over a lot of the, the moderates. It was sort of his detente for moderate young people. So I think there are a lot of places where, uh, you know, Nixon really saw ways to to squeeze as much political capital uh, out of some of these issues, youth issues as possible. You had mentioned the um, money issue with McGovern in 72, but um, bringing out the youth vote um, was, as you mentioned in your book, uh, was a uh, somewhat, the passage of the 26th Amendment was somewhat of a political risk um, by President Nixon bringing all these uh, new young voters into the fray that wouldn't traditionally uh, vote for a Republican president and might be attracted to an anti-war uh, candidate uh, like uh, George McGovern. Um, but why did ultimately did Nixon decide to roll the dice and uh, and take this gamble? Well, in many ways, he didn't have a choice. Um, and so uh, he and he always actually said, you know, make sure it looks like we're not trying, right? So he he wanted to make people know that he he, he didn't he he worried about the risk of looking like he cared, um, and so in some ways he did take a risk, but he mitigated it uh, as much as he could. But it's also really thrust on him. I mean, he did ultimately have a signing ceremony for the Twenty Sixth Amendment, but the amendment does not require the president's signature, so it was going to happen whether or not he supported it. He did sign the 1970 law, which was rejected by the Supreme Court, but he did so reluctantly. And uh, I have quotes in here telling telling his advisors to slow it down and and to stop it. Um, but um, he he thought that it was going to be overturned, um, and it was. Um, so in a lot of ways, he didn't have much of a choice. Um, and so I, I think that explains a lot of um, him. But I think once he realized that it was a reality. That's when he said, you know, we might as well just embrace it. And Reitz actually convinced Nixon in 1971 to have the signing ceremony and to hold it, you know, with a group of, uh, you know, uh, young people, 500 young people that were uh, in a singing and, and uh, singing and choir band that um, Nixon had his people scouted out first. And they reported that they were they were OK. And they said, you know, none of them had had long hair. So, um, you know, he, he made sure right away, right from the get go, that he was going to go ahead and engage young voters, but on his terms. And you write that he was effectively able to split the youth vote in 1972. Um, how did that how did that all pan out uh, regarding young voters um, uh, with, the, with with Nixon's race against McGovern in 72? How was he able to do it? How was he able to, yeah, effectively split um, split that vote? Well, I mean, he, he did a lot better on campuses than he thought he was going to do or than that people predicted. So that's one thing, because they did end up campaigning on campus um, as they sort of gained momentum. Um, but for the most part, it was through getting out the vote. And I think um, one of the lessons from, uh, you know, my story is that um, it's not necessarily the majority um, that, um, you know, that when we talk about the silent majority, they were, they were just uh, in some ways better at getting everybody out and really having a targeted 
uh, robust youth campaign focused on uh, registration and following through. And in a lot of ways also, the Nixon, the Nixon campaign created a separate semi-autonomous young voters for the president, which allowed young people volunteering to look at the campaign and see themselves in the positions of authority. And so it was really uh, effective and, and gave even young people who weren't quite committed to Nixon a uh, sense that they were, uh, had a stake in the, in the election. Um, and so, so that was really an effective technique. Could you expand on that a little bit? You had mentioned um, Youth for Nixon. Um, how did that how did that operation uh, operation work? Right. So um, the the emphasis was on basically getting storefront offices opened, um, and so functionally it was really to have a presence. And they had these storefront offices in as many places as possible. They, they had them in, in every state. There was one, at least one of these in some places they had just, you know, some in, in several towns, even right next to each other. Um, another thing, I think another emphasis on the campaign that was really effective that I mentioned before were the rallies. And so the rallies were, they were traveling rallies and they'd go around into sort of suburban areas um, they were sort of golden oldies, so it wasn't necessarily cutting-edge 1972 music. Um, so it was sort of uh, to sort of soften the edges of the, the youth revolt. Um, and they were also um, sort of um, in, consciously integrated as far as, for example, the rally at, uh, at the Republican National Convention in 1972. The star of that was Sammy Davis Jr., and so in some ways it was meant to, again, push back on that, um, the larger image, but it also was a way to sort of reach out to young voters themselves. And at the, at the end of every concert, they would stand up and all sing in unison um, Nixon's, famous, um, Nixon's famous campaign song. You write that image uh, became important to Nixon's political operation um, beginning even before 1968. Um, the campaign chief of staff, uh, Bob Haldeman, later the White House chief of staff, wrote, wrote an important memo um, in which he states the candidate needs to move out of the dark ages and into the brave new world of the omnipresent eye. Uh, what media strategies did Nixon begin um, deploying in 1968, ones that were particularly effective? So in 1968, um, you know, the focus in many ways was on, um, you know, presenting Nixon in a sort of softer, in a softer tone. And um, so a lot of this was sort of superficial elements. I think, you know, one really important part that they seem to incorporate that I write about a lot was how important um, Nixon's kids were. And so photographing him with the kids, um, showing him more as sort of a family man, um, those were really important elements of sort of softening and, and putting him out there in the public eye. Um, you know, they were extremely framed images. And um, in a lot of ways that reflected ways that, um, you know, and, and Nixon was reluctant to do it, um, but ultimately, saw after 1960 
and um, you know, losing to John F. Kennedy um, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the narrative after that was that um, Nixon didn't play along with the sort of new image politics game. And so in 1968, there was there was that effort. Um, so and, and young voters uh, played a role in that as well. Um, Nixon had the Nixonettes, um, which was a group of you know, uniformed young women who um, would attend his rallies dressed in very sort of traditional um, sort of political garb with straw hats and a sash and skirts, um, but still, you know, represent, um, for example, I have in my book a picture of uh, the Nixonettes holding up a sign that said, Nixon is groovy. So it was sort of like, it really cornball, to me, looking back on it, the 1972 campaign was such a more genuine sort of organic um, representation of youth culture. It was, it was much more framed in 1968. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How did, how did, it, um, how did it change? Um, how did the imagery change in 1972 at, at, for, for the yeah, purpose I mean, of it, appealing to younger voters? Right. I mean, um, like I said, with the rallies, um, that was one way to do it. But I think it was also, um, if you look sort of stylistically, at um, some of the imagery, you can see that it played to some of the more sort of 70s sensibility, sort of a, they had sort of a, a tripped out, um, you know, young voters for the president, a YVP insignia. Um, I have uh, pictures in the book of um, a Nixon car. And so three young Nixonettes spray painted, you know, Nixon's our man, Nixon now, um, you know, the songs, um, the advertising campaign, I, I mean, I, I have a little bit where I compare it to the Pepsi ads for the Pepsi generation. Um, it was sort of moved into um, that type of an imagery that um, really um, sort of made, for some young people, made Nixon hip. How Do you think, George McGovern, do you think the luster for his candidacy, his anti-war candidacy started to wear off by 1972 as the war was coming to an end? Yeah, well, I mean, the problem for McGovern as far as the Vietnam War was concerned was that uh, he was more or less, as far as when he got his start, uh, one, you know, he had some interesting ideas, certainly, um, and, and, uh, they, uh, they were sort of some some radical ideas for for the time and even for today, um, and and I, th- I think that um, he you know was a, a fascinating candidate, but for the most part, I think you you know he has rightfully so been simplified as more or less a one candidate, a one issue candidate, um, and that was sort of anti anti war, and he and he embraced that, um, you know he his campaigns mantra was right from the start, that he was opposed to the war right from the start. Um, and so that was the, the emphasis of his youth campaign. So as Nixon began to unwind the war and the draft, um, you began to see ways in which um, it undermined um, you know, McGovern's assault on Nixon and undermined his appeal to youth. Um, and, and, and the other thing, um, of course, is that the young voters in Nick in McGovern's campaign were was a divisive force. 
um, McGovern was trying to keep together a coalition of young anti-war protesters and blue collar, very patriotic working class, uh, you know, union voters. Um, and, and this proved to be really problematic. Um, McGovern's decision to drop Eagleton, uh, uh, as the story came out that he had received electric shock therapy um, for his vice presidential candidate um, and, and, and moved to Sergeant Shriver was one that I think left a bad taste uh, in the mouth of a lot of uh, young liberals who began to see McGovern not as an outsider, but just, just another politician. Our guest today is Seth Blumenthal, historian and senior lecturer at Boston University. Our topic was how President Nixon built a coalition and developed policies to attract younger voters. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroidis and your Belinda. 